Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Elise Miller and Michael Lerner as they discuss her many years as director of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. Elise Miller, welcome to the new school. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a privilege to be here. Wonderful to have you. So we are uh, recording this conversation uh, just a short few weeks before you step down as the director of the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. That's right. Which um, has been part of Commonweal for many years. Uh, you were a co-founder of what we call CHE, the Collaborative right. on Health and the Environment. Uh, but actually, um, we began to work together long before that in 1993 when I asked you to become the first executive director of the Jennifer Altman Foundation. That's right. What is your memory of the first time we met? That's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, I had moved to California without a job after my, my graduate work and just had felt pulled here. And um, I, I didn't know about Commonweal. I didn't know about you and the cancer health programs that you were doing and other work. And so I, um, I had the good fortune of John Kabat-Zinn, who some people know, I asked him, like, who does he know on the West Coast kind of thing? And he had suggested that I contact you. So when I you know, sent my resume and got a call and said, come out to Bolinas, I wasn't even sure where Bolinas was, and nor did I know its reputation um, at the time. Uh, and so, you know, you told me to take the first right past the third tree, and then the, there was no signs, but really it was all okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so when we met, I remember just um, being in all of the breadth of what was emerging and all the activities under this one roof. And I felt almost teary-eyed because I had felt, as I walked through my life, trying to find a place where all of me could show up mm -hmm. and, and having a very eclectic interest and, and seeing the connections. But most often in society, people want to put you, you know, label you as X, and you're going to work in this sector or that sector. Mm -hmm. And here was someone who clearly didn't, care about boundaries and labels. And, uh, and I thought, oh my gosh, I could actually um, work in a place that would allow me to full, fully be who I am. And, uh, and so I remember being nervous. I remember not quite knowing you know, anything about this place, um, and, but also feeling just at home. Uh, it, was, it was profound. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And neither of us knew a thing about how to run a foundation. <laughs> neither of us knew a thing about <laughs> I was 29, yeah. and, uh, yeah. you know, I didn't know anything about the foundation, but I knew I could type and file mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, organize a few mm -hmm. things. And uh, That was 24 years ago, almost to yeah. the Yeah, almost month. to the day, almost 24 the day. Year, yeah. years ago, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I was saying to you before we started that we've managed to do pretty well with each other. If we sure have. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And so Jennifer Altman Foundation was left um, in my uh, care by Jennifer Altman, who was an alumna of the Commonwealth Cancer Help Program. And uh, she left $12 million, which mm -hmm. for foundations is tiny, uh, but it was a huge amount to me and, mm -hmm. um, and essentially said, she hoped we would support Commonweal and do other good things in the world. 
What is your memory of uh, your years of, as the executive director of the Jennifer Altman Foundation? Well, I think it was a lot of um, sort of experimenting on, mm -hmm. on some level. The investments we chose to make, I think, very much reflected Commonweal's interests mm -hmm. in mind-body health, in juvenile justice issues, and environmental health. So there was that sense of it being uh, something of an extension and a way of giving to other organizations mm -hmm. that are working in those sectors. Uh, so... I think we both did a lot of learning, we, I think with the board as well, trying to figure out uh, where were the best investments and you know, hundreds of proposals coming in. And um, again, we were new. So, so how do you really assess um, the effectiveness of, of different projects? And uh, we learned along the way and we you know, made some mistakes that were Mm -hmm. You know, whatever, maybe not invested mm -hmm. in the best mm -hmm. possible places, but it was, it was really um, allowed certainly me to explore these very different sectors and understand their connections. And I was particularly drawn to the environmental health piece. Mm -hmm. And so I got to know the players in this field that was just really emerging or coalescing. Um, and, and you know, the major people who were the movers and shakers, Pete Myers, uh, Theo Colburn, others, just, you know, I came on board around when they were developing some of their work and writing their book, Our Stolen Future. And, and so I got to be with and, and talk with some of the great minds who were really strategizing to, um, to create this movement. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a real incredible privilege um, to do that. Before we go further in that direction, which I want to pursue, the, the work on environmental health, what are some of the early grants that just you really struck you personally in one way or another? Mm. Well, one of the very first grants we made, actually, was to the Whidbey Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, you had known Fritz and Vivian Hull, and they had sent in a proposal. They had been the Chinook Learning Center. And so it was, and that actually played a key role, little did I know, mm -hmm. to my being drawn, uh, my husband and I being drawn to moving up to Whidbey later on. Um, so that there was those uh, types of grants. Um, I, I'm and just... Parenthetically, Whidbey Island being an island north of Seattle, Seattle. where you settled with Dan, uh, built a house with your hands, mm -hmm. uh, Dan being an extraordinary craftsman, and um, then uh, we'll talk more about what you did up there. Uh, but Whidbey Island then, in part because of you, became an important part of my life and Commonweal's life. Mm -hmm. So there's the, All cycles there's together. the Whidbey... <laughs> Uh, vector. Yes. <laughs> That's very significant. Right. So back to the other than the environmental health, what were some of the early projects that you remember? Well, one um, was just, well, one was uh, supporting our stolen future. Mm -hmm. I mean, really sort mm -hmm. of getting, most of our work was around mm -hmm. educating, getting the science out there, mm -hmm. trying to figure out which organizations were, you know, had that capacity mm -hmm. to bring the science and get it into more mainstream audiences. And so our work was really to promote those activities. Um, and I think what we, we did was we helped to define a field um, in environmental health through our grant making, trying to uh, very um, uh, you know, clearly focus on what could leverage 
this into mainstream thinking because environmental health really in some ways was a, a stepchild of sorts of the environmental movement and sort of came up in the shadows of the environmental movement and also was kind of coming alongside the environmental justice uh, mm -hmm. movement. But what was unique about environmental health was really putting human health absolutely at the center of decision-making. Mm -hmm. And that distinguished it. Certainly environmental justice puts human health, but it's really in a justice frame. It's in a human rights frame. Mm -hmm. And this was very, you know, the environmental health movement really focused on human health in relationship to our, our society. And then focus more on this, uh, the toxic chemicals piece of it and chose that as the strategy moving forward. Um, and it's now evolved more, which we can get to. But, but I think our work and doing those early investments in environmental health uh, allowed uh, more groups to come forward. There was only a few groups in that field and you know some research scientists and so forth that were doing the work, but allowed more to come forward and, um, and again, define why it is so important that human health is put in the center of everything we think about, every policy we, we make, every market decision we make. Um, so that, mm. that, I feel, was... Um, and we were obviously doing this with other people, but that was a great um, uh, sense of, of progress and, and momentum that we helped to build. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to think about this because um, 24 years ago when we started, nobody had ever heard of the environmental health movement. Right, was uh, it was called the National Toxics Coalition. It was all framed in terms of toxics. Mm -hmm. uh, the National Toxics Coalition had come together and then collapsed right. with a lot of acrimony on a lot of different people's yeah. parts. Uh, and uh, so toxics work was in the ashes. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Pete Myers and Theo Colburn were bringing a whole new perspective to it, which right. was about endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Mm -hmm. And... Um, my memory is of meeting uh, Pete at um, a meeting of the consultative group on biodiversity, which Catherine Porter, our friend and colleague, was mm -hmm. running. And uh, Pete gave a talk on endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and one of our early grants was to publicize their right. book, Our Stolen exactly. Future. Um, and then working with Gary Cohen, who became uh, the head of Healthcare Without Harm, and Charlotte Brody, who was the co-director with him for a while and others, and it was essential. We reframed the toxics work as mm -hmm. the environmental health movement. Right. And I wrote an early essay called The Age of Extinctions mm -hmm. and the Emerging Environmental Health Movement, right. which did the equivalent of going viral in the pre-viral <laughs> age uh, that I wrote, but uh, where the nomenclature of the environmental health movement really took shape, um, mm -hmm. and it was a much more inclusive term than toxics, right. Right. and it connected toxics specifically to human health. Mm -hmm. So those were incredibly creative days. Absolutely. Um, and as you say, at that point, uh, there was no Health and Environmental Funders Network, Right. which today, you know, there's something, Kathy Sessions, who runs it, tells me that there's something like $200 million a year now going right. into environmental health and justice worldwide. That's right. None of that existed. Right. None of that existed 
24 years ago. Right. So what we're describing here is our tiny piece mm -hmm. of a movement that right. took shape and that can in some sense be dated to the last quarter of a century mm -hmm. where toxics work became the environmental health and justice movement. Right. And that became a very uh, powerful um, movement indeed. Right. Yeah. I do remember those first days of going to the grant makers and health meeting mm -hmm. and Jennifer Altman Foundation was very involved with the Environmental Grant Makers Association. Mm -hmm. But those first forays into this mm -hmm. uh, world of the health grant makers and trying to have them think about environment and it's, you know, it's been an ongoing mm -hmm. challenge. But you were very instrumental in, mm -hmm. in finally making those links and the Health and Environmental Net Funders Network emerged. Yeah. And, and the way we got to grant makers in health which, as you say, did not have any history of interest mm -hmm. in these issues, was that my mentor, Phil Lee, right. uh, enabled us to uh, get connected with them. Right. And, um, and Phil, of course, played a tremendous role as uh, an early board member of the Jennifer Altman Foundation. Right. He was chancellor of the University of California, San Francisco, and um, uh, former undersecretary of health under both Johnson and... Clinton, I think. Uh, yeah, there was two separate. Yeah, yeah on yeah. two occasions. And really an extraordinary, extraordinary figure in the field um, to whom um, Commonweal and the Jennifer Altman Foundation owe, owe a tremendous amount. So that was then and this is now. So <laughs> <laughs> that was 1993. And so... You served for five years as the first uh, director of the Jennifer Altman Foundation, and I know we're both delighted that Shori Myers, who's the new executive director, is here today with us. In fact, Pete Myers' daughter, to close the loop to our early work on endocrine disruption, but a rising force in environmental health philanthropy in her own right. Absolutely. Uh, who uh, is doing extraordinary work in the field. So in 1998, after five years of work together, uh, you decided to move up to Whidbey Island. Uh, tell us right. um, what drew you to Whidbey. What is Whidbey like? And what, what is what Whidbey like? Yeah. Well, I... Throughout my life, and this kind of relates to why I moved to California without a job, mm -hmm. I get these kind of strong hits mm -hmm. about um, what needs to happen next. Mm -hmm. And I'm in one of those transition times right now. Mm -hmm. But when we started getting to know some of the people on Whidbey, and it was mm -hmm. partly through like the grant we made to the Whidbey Institute, and then uh, Kurt Holting, who's um, a wonderful friend and neighbor on, on Whidbey and takes people up to Alaska, Dan and I did one of his trips and getting off the plane, uh, having just done a trip with Kurt, uh, the, the float plane in Alaska was Rick and Grassi and Peggy Taylor and mm -hmm. other people we got to know who were um, very much part of the the rich life on Whidbey. And so I think we were drawn there because we wanted to live more on a human scale. Um, and there were so many creative people uh, from different parts of our lives. My old high school friend from Virginia, uh, she and her husband had moved there. One of my professors in graduate school was there. Um, other colleagues, I was thinking of uh, Betsy and Charles, uh, who had been in New York City doing their work, decided to Charles move. Terry and Betsy McGregor. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. And Charles had been with the uh, Rockefeller Brothers, and, mm -hmm. and Betsy is a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, so there was just this incredible richness of, of people moving there. And we realized, wow, we could have 
even a better social life here and more sense of community than in the Bay Area where we had dear friends, um, of course, but uh, we were all spread out and it took two hours to go have dinner with someone. You could also afford to buy a piece of land. And we could also afford it. Oh, that, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were, when we started looking at properties uh, in Marin and, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking we'd have to pay $800,000 for a, Mm -hmm. you know, one room and with Mm -hmm. an outhouse, Mm -hmm. we decided. Mm -hmm. Um, So we did find 10 acres, which, Mm -hmm. of course, we could have never afforded Mm -hmm. in this area, Mm -hmm. and decided to um, build our own home. Mm -hmm. Um, And fortunately, my husband is, Dan, is very much uh, Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, expert in that realm, and and so we had this uh, you know year long process, um, which we actually stayed together, which is <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, it was what we kept finding was a sense of connection and community and support. And I had worried about going to Whidbey initially. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought, oh gosh, small community and, you know, kind of ingrown and, you know, who knows what people are saying behind your back and there's, um, and sort of feeling, you know, maybe I'm in more in a fishbowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has not been like that at all. The people who have chosen to move there, I think are, I've also chosen that lifestyle. I've chosen a desire to, um, live more consciously and with more kindness and um, care, both for each other and the earth, and uh, really reflecting our values. And it's certainly proven that. I still I pinch myself sometimes um, when I get involved or am asked to participate in yet some other amazing uh, event or organization on Whidbey Island, uh, which is just... Um, it feels very rare. There are other places, of course, but it feels very rare. And I think there's something about having an island with very distinct you know, geography and boundaries um, also helps to cultivate that mm-hmm. kind of community. Mm-hmm. So after you were there for a, a little less than a year, you decided to continue your work in environmental health, which you've done with the Jennifer Altman Foundation. Uh, tell us about what you did, what you developed. Sure. Um, well, the first six months we were on Whidbey, I decided to start a little consulting uh, business, and I called it Equus, E-Q-U-I-S, for equity, quality, universality, integrity, and sustainability, mm-hmm. um, which were the qualities that I wanted to evoke. Um, and so I, I did a few like white papers for the California Wellness Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really, I didn't want to just consult. and um, And so I was on the... Uh, I think the Nordic track at the athletic club with another friend of mine next. And I said, I've just got to start this new nonprofit on children's environmental health. Mm-hmm. And so we went to the local cafe and started writing on napkins. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and she, um, Stephanie Ryan was one of my first mm-hmm. board members and so forth. And so what that was, uh, we called the Institute for Children's Environmental Health. And during my time at the Altman Foundation, I realized there were a couple gaps that had not, that weren't being addressed at that time in the environmental health growing, growing field. And one was that the few entities that were working on environmental health were not in conversation with each other. They there was some tension between founders. Uh, they were you know different enough. There was a scarcity of resources, and so there was a, you know there was some territorialness going on. And I felt very strongly, which is my tendency, that we all ought to sit around the same table. And so um, I worked uh, to one of the first. 
um, projects I took on was to host the summit on children's environmental health in New York. And uh, that was the very first time about 30 of the core people in the children's environmental health world came together. And uh, some of our closest colleagues still were in that room. And out of Who that- Who was there? Uh, so Dick Jackson, who um, was at the CDC and now is at UCLA, the Dean of School of Public Health. Um, Phil Landrigan, who has been one of the leaders in uh, the environmental health at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Um, uh, there was Ken Cook, uh, environmental working group. Uh, Charlotte Brody, who was then working with Healthcare Without Harm, mm -hmm. I guess, right, and that I think that, that started. Yeah, right, yeah, right, right. So, and then um, some of the smaller organizations, like the Children's Environmental Health Network, which was really the the first in the field to even mm -hmm. develop a, mm -hmm. an NGO, uh, was was you know present. So, so we decided to craft the first joint principles. Mm -hmm. Guiding principles on children's environmental health, and this was a you know <laughs> a three month you know wordsmithing um, activity after we left the meeting that uh, I facilitated, and finally it's relatively short, but you know with mm -hmm. a group of people trying to write anything, um, but it, it laid out what our priorities, principles, and values uh, were for the field, and it wasn't just one entity doing it or the other; it was really all of us. And so I ended up uh, saying, well, why don't we have a partnership for children's environmental health that's distinct from any one of our organizations or institutions? And uh, so the logo actually um, had several of the other logos blended into it. So again, it wasn't representing just one organization. It really was trying to express the, you know, the sense of this connect, the wholeness of and the collaboration between all these mm -hmm. these groups. And so we had for the next two, maybe three or four years, we had annual meetings. Um, and some of our Canadian partners came down as well. And uh, we hosted them in different parts of the United States. And, and I think that really helped um, spawn many more organizations, often smaller, um, in different regions of the United States, working on children's environmental health. Mm -hmm. So this was, I think, part of it. And then it really didn't, wasn't needed anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, the partnership kind of fell away in part because there, was, there were connections. There was, we had built the trust between mm -hmm. these groups. More organizations were involved. And there was kind of a network that mm -hmm. was established. And, no, and so we didn't need to do that formally anymore. Mm -hmm. So uh, from there, um, let's go to um, 2002, which was the uh, uh, founding of uh, CHE, the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. What is your memory of how CHE came into being? Mm -hmm. Well, I remember being in this room, in fact, <laughs> with a number of other players, but it really started, we had a conference at the University of uh, California, San Francisco, and uh, we had a number of people who were doing research on uh, uh, health, how environment was affecting certain health endpoints, um, whether that was heart disease, um, Parkinson's, uh, learning and developmental disabilities, and so forth. And so after that conference, a smaller group came here to Commonweal and, and met and began to strategize about what was missing in the environmental health field at that point. What, what else could we bring forward that would really leverage um, this, this uh, way of thinking about uh, health and the environment? 
And um, we had some of the, I think, smartest people in the room and a number of people representing different health-affected groups mm. in the room, uh, brain cancer, endometriosis. There was just a, a wide range. And uh, that really um, evoked a sense, well, what about if these health-affected groups had this information, if they knew the science mm -hmm. and could talk about it with their respective uh, constituencies and then go to their policymakers or their you know, decision makers, whether on the local level, state level, national, or even international, with this knowledge, could that be a turning point? Because of course, when you have a disease or you have a disability, it's, it's you know, as personal as it gets, right? And if you know that one contributor might well be toxic exposures, and you find this out and you integrate that into your narrative mm -hmm. uh, and go to your policymakers, it, it is a real statement. And so really that was a strategy that emerged, was if we can have all these different health-affected groups um, uh, empowered with this science, uh, and then and in turn, they take it out to their constituencies and decision makers, then we could have a real, we could strengthen the movement that's there. And, um, and I think that was very, very smart. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the collaborative continues to, uh, since 2002, um, but I, I guess when- Now in our 15th year. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so at that, uh, inception um, of the of Che, we thought there were what would be some different working groups. Where was the science the strongest? Um, and one place was with learning and developmental disabilities, where environment played a role. And there was a fair, you know, it's still it's grown exponentially since then. But there was enough scientific literature where we could say we can say something about this. And so I had the good fortune of being asked then to run what was called the Learning and Developmental Disabilities Initiative. I was still uh, heading up the Institute for Children's Environmental Health, but this became an extension of our work. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that program was uh, one to take off partly because we had funding, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so we had our first national meeting in Washington, D.C. with some of the key people in different learning and developmental disabilities organizations. Uh, and out of that, um, we went around and did workshops and went to meetings, uh, their annual meetings, and talked about environmental health science, got on their programs and on their agendas. Um, some of them created programs, and I'm talking about the Learning Disabilities Association of America, the Autism Society, the uh, National Association for the Duly Diagnosed, um, mm -hmm. The American Association for the Intellectual uh, for Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities. So there were these core groups that um, uh, really got on board, and again, we were funded, and I think made a real difference. The organization that has stayed most involved is still the Learning Disabilities Association because they they really had a, a cultural support within the organization for that um, this this work. Um, and the another major um, uh, trajectory of the of Che from since its inception was uh, reproductive health and fertility, and this was in large part because of Allie Carlson, whom I know was oh, and she is here. She is. Um, and so Allie Carlson, and she can tell the story far better than I, but basically started knocking on doctors' doors and saying, well, why? 
why do I have to deal with this infertility issues? And what, you know, is, does the environment play a role? And, and basically through her incredible persistence and dedication, and fortunately um, chose to work with Che, uh, she really helped to orchestrate this, uh, what has really shaped and changed the field of reproductive health. Um, uh, through uh, Allie's work and, and others, um, the first there was the first scientific consensus statement that was developed, you know, organized in the Vallambrosa statement, uh, and then there was another conference that brought in other uh, people interested in reproductive health and the environment. And out of all of this, this is a much longer story. It's actually detailed on our website, mm. um, but out of this came the first academic program on reproductive health and the environment in the United States at UCSF. And Linda Judis has uh, been spearheading that, and now Tracy um, Woodruff has, 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 has taken that over. And they have, have done extraordinary work and managed to get major mainstream, uh, like the uh, American Society of Medical or Reproductive Medicine on board with these issues and, and others. And this took, you know, just dedication over years, mm. but um, made it happen. And it's still going very, very strong. Our work in CHE is mm. not as active just because, once again, mm. all these other organizations, they've, they've taken the, mm. you know, bull and run with it. Mm. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation with Elise Miller and Michael Lerner. But it's it's just fascinating once again how just a few people with that kind of uh, passion in you know smarts and strategy and dedication make it happen. I remember my wife Cheryl Patton introduced me to Allie, and uh, Cheryl's here too, and has been very active in Che and all of this from the start. Um, and I remember being in Charles' office upstairs with Allie and uh, listening to her interest in uh, fertility and uh, pregnancy and reproductive compromise and so forth, and looking at her and having the same sense of recognition that I had with you about what you could do in the world. And I said to her, uh, Allie, you could be the Elise Miller of reproductive <laughs> health and fertility. And, and you went, who's Elise? <laughs> <laughs> no, she knew who you were. She knew who you were. And I think mm. that planted a seed. And Allie, um, working with Pete Myers and, uh, and excuse me? And Ted, and Ted Shetler. Ted and many others. Here. Ted Shetler's here. Bob Gould is here. Um, so quite a few of our, Neil Gandell is here. Heather Sarantis is here. Quite a few of our... Yes, I mentioned Cheryl being here. Uh, quite a few of our colleagues are here today. Um, but in any case, um, what you did with LDDI, the Learning and Developmental Disabilities Initiative, and what Allie did with uh, pregnancy compromise and uh, fertility and reproductive health, those were two of the keystone developments in Che's intention which was to bring the health-affected groups together mm -hmm. as a uh, force mm -hmm. to talk about what this meant in, right. in, their, uh, in the right. lives of people who've been affected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so interesting to me, because I didn't realize this at all at the time we were doing it, but 
karmically it's interesting, that, and I began to talk about it early on, you know, I'm a DES son. My mother mm -hmm. took DES uh, diethylsilvestrate, which was being marketed by the pharmaceutical industry as a way to prevent miscarriages because she'd had four or five before she managed to stay pregnant with me. And, um, of course, the pharmaceutical industry knew while they were marketing it from animal studies that, uh, that this... Um, first endocrine disruptor to be identified, the first, mm -hmm. uh, was causing a very high rate of a very rare um, reproductive cancer in women, in, in female mice or mm -hmm. rats, whichever they were studying. And they knew that. Mm -hmm. But they sat on that until it turned out that there was an epidemic of uh, cervical cancers among young girls. Um, right. And uh, then it came out. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and they fought tooth and nail to keep DES on the market, you know, through this process. Right. So I wasn't thinking about any of that mm -hmm. when I first started to imagine Che, which um, was in conversations with Gary Cohen and Charlotte Brody. And I had some acronym like CHA-CHA. I forget, it was like <laughs> communities, Community Health Alliances for something or other. And I had this fantasy that we'd go around into neighborhoods and cities all over the country and have health-affected groups talking on loudspeakers on corners, you know. <laughs> uh, and it didn't turn out exactly that way, but, um, but it was a fair approximation of it. And then, uh, then there was a very important meeting with uh, Gary Cohen and Pete Myers and Beto Badolf from Marissa Foundation and me in Laguna Beach, uh, where Pete and Gary, who have been two of the top strategists in this whole field, and mm -hmm. have both been mentors of mine. Fortunately, my mentors are almost always younger than I am, which is a very good thing. And um, they really blessed this idea. They said, yeah, we need that strategy. Um, and particularly with the whole field of endocrine disruptors coming in, because up until then, the dose made the poison, and the larger the dose of chemicals, the more toxic it was. And the revolution in this thinking, which started with Theo and Pete, was that endocrine-disrupting chemicals during a pregnancy and early childhood could work at parts per million or parts per billion or whatever. Mm -hmm. And as Pete uses the uh, acronym, it uses the metaphor, uh, it as if they could hijack the the. Uh, controls of a, uh, a passenger plane mm -hmm. and, uh, and set it on a completely different trajectory. And so mm -hmm. these endocrine-disrupting chemicals at incredibly low levels, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily the dose makes the, the poison, at incredibly low levels during pregnancy and early childhood, uh, could uh, result in lifelong diseases. And the list has continued to grow. Right. And now, you know, we face the possibility that some of these chemicals act over more than one generation, mm -hmm. that some of them are obesogens, which can contribute. Nobody talks, even to this day, in mm -hmm. public discourse. Everybody talks about obesity as a mm -hmm. huge, you know, what over half the population. Mm -hmm. But still, mm -hmm. nobody talks about the solid science mm -hmm. that some of these endocrine disruptors, including DES, by the mm -hmm. way, there are rat studies that show that given at a certain point in a rat's development that DES can make a rat obese. Right. But uh, 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 studies at UC Irvine and elsewhere have demonstrated uh, that um, 
you know, that this obesity can go on over several generations and so on. So right. even though we've been working on this for 15 years, uh, and even though we've made tremendous progress, mm -hmm. the fact remains that chemicals in general and endocrine disrupting chemicals in particular, the story of how they affect health is still tremendously underappreciated. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I even... Uh, issues and concerns like lead, where right. at a higher dose, we, you know, we're trying to lower the dose of lead exposure to lower blood lead levels. But then we find out that it's an endocrine disrupting chemical as well. So that means that minute amounts, amounts it can have effects. And so that hadn't been mm -hmm. understood for a long, long time. So even the chemicals that we actually did bring some attention to, uh, we realized, oh, there's this whole other way of thinking and, and you know, scientifically uh, that would suggest they can impact health as well and at doses right. you would never have imagined before. So. If we just talk for a moment about what happened uh, from that point 24, 25 years ago when we started rebuilding toxics work as environmental health. And uh, again, I, I, I want to point to Gary and Pete because uh, they complemented each other in a very interesting way. Pete works more from the science space and environmental health media and thinking about um, uh, how one moves uh, large mainstream scientific communities, especially the Endocrine Society, which mm -hmm. has turned out... Uh, I actually originally thought that the king on the chessboard of this game was the American Cancer Society. Mm -hmm. And I spent years trying to convince the American right. Cancer Society to be concerned about this. But the problem was that the American Cancer Society, which does good work and has many good people in it, gets a lot of funding from the chemical industry, which has been very aware mm -hmm. that if they can head the American Cancer Society in the direction it naturally goes, which is to support pharmaceutical development and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. and stay away from chemicals, that would be a good thing. Right. But I didn't realize, and I should have, that the real king on the chessboard in endocrine disruption was the endocrine society, right. and that the endocrine society was not captive, as the American Cancer Society is, to the influence of uh, the chemical industry. Right. And so it has turned out, in, in large part, I would say, as a result of the work that people in our community has done, Pete and many, many others, and the work that Che has done and other organizations, that the endocrine society, which truly got endocrine disruptors and are the world authority mm -hmm. on endocrine mm -hmm. disruption, right came to be activists, mm -hmm. not just acknowledging the science, but activists right. in bringing the science into these policy venues in Europe and the United States and so on. And they were, are the best messengers for and this. And they're the best messengers. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. it's been an... And, and therefore, in addition to the science, then uh, uh, Gary and others created this template of organizing where they said... Uh, we want, yes, healthcare, healthcare without harm. We want military toxics. We want healthy building network. Mm -hmm. We want all these different industrial sectors. Mm -hmm. And the theory was that if 
we weaned the industrial sectors, which were dependent on chemicals, mm-hmm. off of their chemical dependency, mm-hmm. that we, and including the healthcare sector is a critical, critical set of spokespeople, right. but all the other industrial sectors as well. If we could wean them of their dependence on mm-hmm. chemicals and do the work that Ali Carlson and others have been doing on green chemistry and mm-hmm. creating green chemicals, right. and, um, that that would be a way mm-hmm. of transforming an industry that really, you know, climate change gets all the headlines and mm-hmm. has sucked a huge amount of resources into uh, the struggle to prevent right climate change. Right, so. And, mm-hmm. and, yeah, of course. Right. But the fact remains that the fact that we're all carrying hundreds and hundreds of these chemicals in our right. bodies uh, is a very, very profoundly serious thing for not only humans but for all life on Earth. Right, and it's yeah. uh, with climate change and the environmental health, they really are two branches of the same root of the tree, which is the petrochemical industry. Exactly. And so they they are intimately related. Right. Uh, all the chemicals that are causing health problems on our environmental health branch are, mm-hmm. are the same ones that have actually contributed to climate mm-hmm. change. And so when we can make, you know, blend those um, and show the relationship, I think that that's an effective message. Yeah. yeah. Now, in addition to uh, uh, the work you did with learning and developmental disability, and we should mention Ruth Hennig and the John Merck Fund as having really driven that work for a long, long right. period of time. And Ruth, of course, now with Charlotte Brody and others is doing Healthy Babies, Bright Futures, which continues the work uh, in children's environmental health That's right. uh, that you were so instrumental in doing early on. Mm. Um, but we also had a very positive impact on the President's Cancer Panel on Cancer and the Environment. That's right, that's and right. And that was something that Charlotte Brody, when she was the Executive Director of Commonweal, really championed. And mm-hmm. she really went to work right. to help the staff and the... Um, uh, and the directors of the uh, President's Cancer Panel uh, to hear the science on mm-hmm. cancer in the right. environment. Right, so this was the very first President's Cancer Panel that focused on environment and cancer. Mm-hmm. Though the panel had been established in 1976, I believe, mm-hmm. it wasn't until, what, 20, 2008, I think, somewhere mm-hmm. in there, that this they actually finally thought, oh, well, maybe we'll, you know, we'll consider environmental factors. And and a uh, you know, number of our close colleagues, researchers, and advocates, Dick Clapp, Dick Clapp from mm-hmm. Boston University, uh, were very instrumental and in behind the scenes, you know, creating documents, uh, fact sheets, providing testimony. And it was that that they came out, the President's Cancer Panel came out with an amazingly strong statement that we are doing incalculable harm to the American public by not considering environmental factors. With two panelists, neither of whom expected to do this in the first place, and were very credible mainstream spokespeople. So here this extraordinary report comes out, and guess what? The American Cancer Society tries to bury it. You know, tries to say, no, it isn't really that important. But despite their um, uh, opposition, this became one of the most downloaded reports in the history of uh, these panels and so forth. It's widely distributed across the country and around the world and very authoritative. Mm -hmm. That's right. So those are the learning developmental disabilities work, the fertility and pregnancy compromise work, and the President's Cancer Panel. If we were to pick three highlights. There have been many, many others on which we've worked. 
Right. Uh, I, I think of the work Ted Shetler's done on asthma, for example, that's had a big impact in Massachusetts. Ted, could you say a word about what Massachusetts has done with the asthma work? Um, one of the Che partners, uh, Polly Hoppin, has spearheaded this effort in, in Massachusetts, but uh, the, the long and the short of it is that Massachusetts is the first state in, in the country that actually has the primary prevention of asthma written into the state plan for asthma control. In mm. uh, every state has such a program, but Massachusetts is the only one that has primary prevention of asthma, keeping people from getting asthma in the first place, not just making it less problematic for them after they mm. have the disease. Uh, so this is really groundbreaking, uh, and it's 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 a tough uh, uh, slog because we, we need more research and so forth, but we also need to put to work what we already know about preventing asthma. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's one of the pioneering efforts that's going on. Ted, as, as you've heard this first part of this conversation, did any reflections come to your mind, things that you would add that we may not have emphasized? I think, I think you hit all the highlights. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that... Um, uh, You've, you've begun to build toward, you've gone from the toxics to the environmental yeah. health field, uh, and, and you're now sort of beginning to realize that the toxic chemicals fit into a larger analysis. Right. That's exactly um, where we're going. Yeah, and, uh, uh, but I think, I think that you've, yeah. you've, you've yeah. laid this out very nicely. Just so everyone knows, uh, Ted Shetler is our science director for the collaborative, as well as science director for the Science and Environmental Health Network, and has been kind of our go-to guy for pretty much everything. The, the running the running joke is that uh, when TED Talks started to be a, you know a phenomena, and people would sit around, you know, we were kind of just hearing about these TED Talks, and we thought. Well, Ted knows everything about pretty much everything, so maybe he's just, you know, this Ted talks. And so, we, I mean, whether it's reproductive health, neurological health, you know, breast cancer, asthma, so many issues, uh, Ted has been just uh, center, um, critical for our work. Yeah. yeah. So since we're, since we're talking about recent achievements, uh, really builds on Ted's work of many years, because Ted has been the principal force within CHE uh, driving the concept of the ecological paradigm of health. That's right. And our new website is uh, focused on that. Right. And it's very interesting, uh, let me just do this as a preface, because uh, and Ted wrote an extraordinary book called The Ecology of Breast Cancer, um, which I wrote the introduction for. And, and I think Ted convinced all of us early on that, in fact, the research on endocrine-disrupting chemicals led us inevitably to the recognition that it wasn't just chemicals <laughs> that were affecting people's right. health. There were these wide range of other factors. So as we developed the ecological paradigm of health, we began to get pushback from some of our colleagues who were the activists on trying to do something about chemicals Mm -hmm. who are saying, wait a minute, this new you know, uh, uh, complexity theory, ecological paradigm of health is going to play right into the hands of the chemical industry because they're going to be able to emphasize all these other issues that are going on. 
and we're, we're very concerned about it. Right. But we didn't have any choice right. because the collaborative on healthy environment is about the science. Right. And the science was pointing us at the ecological right. paradigm. Right. And rather than wait for the chemical industry to take this and you know, frame it in their terms, mm-hmm. we wanted to frame this as it should be framed, as a deeper understanding. And we believed and believe to this day because chemicals remain part of the DNA and the backbone of Jai. Mm-hmm that the story about how chemicals affect health could survive complexity theory and the ecological paradigm and the recognition of all these other factors. Right, right. Well, I think uh, the, you know, the focusing on chemicals is, has been uh, one of the best strategies, I think, to, to, to finally bring attention to those issues because they, they, people were looking at social determinants of health or access to healthcare, or other concerns. And so I think it was, it's, and it continues to be absolutely necessary for um, a good part of the sector to say, okay, we still need to keep you know, moving on those particular issues. Um, and I think the green chemistry piece is a complement to that, as you've described. Um, I, and at the same time, the, you know, the science has gotten stronger. Um, and where we can look at you know, what the built environment and the socioeconomic concerns and the uh, nutrition and all these other uh, factors that impact our development, um, including chemicals, and, and really start to, to elaborate on that very complex um, you know, understanding and network of things that mm-hmm. impact us. And it's, and it's, as Ted would say, it's, it's incredibly challenging because as you go more into it, the more complex it gets. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's both holding it in that frame, which does reflect, I think, you know, the truth of the sciences, and this is the truth of our experiences. We live in ecological wholeness. We are interconnected with everything else. This is a holistic theory of health. Right. Right. It's a holistic theory of health. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so since that's, that's you know, the essence of it, um, sure, we can focus on one piece to the other, but it's also the synergistic effects of these, com- you know, of these factors that um, we're trying to ex- understand at multiple layers. That, uh, and I've learned so much from, from Ted about even how to describe these issues because it's been such a core part of Ted's writing and, and work and it's really brought that to Che. And now with the new website that we developed over this last year to have that reflected graphically as well as uh, throughout our, our site um, is, is really exciting. And I think it does provide a framework for a lot of the other organizations that are working on uh, toxic chemicals or the built environment or uh, socioeconomic concerns, social determinants of health to have a home and, and to see the connections. And that's what we really, I think, are aspiring to do. I mean, one thing that I feel like I still haven't seen happen that has been a bee in my bonnet for um, a number of years is to truly have those who have been working on social determinants of health, like the ACE studies, the adverse childhood effect studies that show that kids who are uh, exposed to abuse and exposed to um, poverty and other social issues uh, have higher risk of heart disease and diabetes and so forth growing up. 
And we find the same thing with toxic chemicals and other, and yet these two areas really do not converse um, mm -hmm. at this point. There's still quite the distinction. Are, are some of the major uh, funders, whether it's Robert Wood Johnson um, or the Gates Foundation, uh, they um, do incredible work in these other areas, but they have yet when they look at the upstream drivers of health, they have yet to look at pollution as a key contribution. And, and so they don't fund those areas yet. But I think what we're moving towards, and I, I think what Che can still be a driver in, is to bring these different uh, uh, you know, distinctions between the social and environmental together and say, wait a second, it's all part of it and we have to look at it. And they, um, they interact. So, so I think that's an exciting role for Che to play. I agree with that. The other thing I think to add further to the complexity, a couple of thoughts I want to offer. One is that the toxics activists, the people, the chemical activists, were worried about the ecological paradigm because it brought in all these other factors that you just named. But the other thing that's been going on is that the number of contaminants that we're concerned about has gone beyond chemicals. Mm -hmm. So Che, for example, has an extraordinary science serve on electromagnetic field. Uh, and really, right. the, the field of the science on EMF has, has developed at Che uh, as a home mm -hmm. uh, because many of the leaders in the field of EMF work Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, participate in that listserv. It's right. a very active listserv right. where the real science goes out every day. Mm -hmm. But we could have equivalent listservs on nanotechnology, right. on biotechnology, mm -hmm. on robotics. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there are a whole uh, on uh, there are a whole series of other contaminants mm -hmm. uh, on uh, synthetic chemistry. Right. And so the the just as the range of uh, of major factors uh, in different sectors that you just named, you mm -hmm. know, the, the environment, I mean, you know, the, the built environment and so forth uh, have expanded through the ecological paradigm of health. So have the contaminant vectors. Right, the vectors, right, yeah. right. And so the thing that really strikes me is the bad news is that it's complicated, but the good news is that it's complicated. The good news is that in the ecological paradigm of health, if, for example, you are exposed to lots of chemical toxins, um, there are, in fact, other things you can do to build resilience, even right. in the face of that. So good diet, stress mm -hmm. reduction, mm -hmm. exercise, social support. Right. And guess what? Not only do those build resilience, but those are also the same resilience factors that are now being widely used to reverse chronic disease by people like Dean Ornish on heart disease and others on diabetes and mm -hmm. so on and so That's forth. Absolutely. It turns out that, uh, as Ted often says, that everything becomes health policy. Mm. Education becomes health policy. Agriculture becomes health policy. Mm -hmm. You know, that right. all of these things because we're dealing with a holistic ecological framework, right. become health policy. So if getting rid of chemicals in a community is incredibly hard to do, it's not necessarily the only thing you can do to improve health in that right. community. There are a bunch right. of other things. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the resiliency, I mean, that's what we, unfortunately, we're, we all have these chemicals, as you said, in exactly. our bodies. We, you know, we have to figure out other ways to um, make ourselves as healthy as possible right. so that we can withstand the kind of onslaught and, and work towards right. removing those uh, exposures. And that's why we have a science group called Che Integrative Health, right. which is the one place that I know in the United States where the people concerned with uh, contaminants meet the integrative medicine people from Andrew Weil's program, the uh, functional, functional medicine people, yeah. Yeah. the uh, osteopaths, the chiropractors, and all the others, where we're really saying, guess what? There's a perfect fit mm -hmm. between all these stress factors and the need to reimagine what healthcare looks like, right. not just in terms of biomedicine, but in terms of all the lifestyle and related issues. And they get it. Mm -hmm. You know, right. I was at a conference uh, last weekend in San Diego of, uh, of uh, naturopaths and osteopaths, which was all about what to do about toxic chemical exposures, mm -hmm. you know? Right. So there really is a fit uh, between the health-promoting activities that Commonweal's involved with in the Cancer Health Program and our Healing Circles work and other things like that, and the work on, right. on you know... And I think one other piece, and we do include this in our um, website, we're still developing some of the pages, is about war. And, uh, you know, I'm Bob Gould, who's here, Physicians for Social Responsibility and the Program for Reproductive Health and the Environment at UCSF. Uh, really, I remember you're emphasizing that to me after one of our Children's Environmental Health Conferences, where you, you haven't brought up you know, war and all the deprivation that comes from that. And, uh, and you know, of course, nuclear war is still, you know, mm. possibly out there. All those considerations that, that is a huge factor. And certainly right now with all the wars going on around the world and the refugees from those wars and the, and the children that are being impacted on every level. And, of course, there's some exposure to toxics, but there's also just the, you know, the, the stress level and malnutrition and... and um, other factors that are, are equally as important, and, and we need to bring those in too. Even on the war thing, and Bob, I'm gonna ask you uh, to comment in a moment, but even on the war thing, when people talk about Iraq and Syria and so on, the level of contamination that mm -hmm. war creates with these uranium-tipped uh, weapons or whatever it is, I don't remember mm -hmm. all the specifics, but quite aside from everything else, the the environmental health impact on right. reproductive health and children being born with all kinds of problems and cancer rates and so yeah, on. Birth defects. And that's yeah. going to go on for an incredibly long time, you right. know. But it never gets mentioned in the literature on war, you know, right. or almost right. never. You're listening to a conversation with Elise Miller and Michael Lerner. Bob, as you've listened to this conversation, you've been involved with Che from the beginning and just any thoughts or reflections you have on, on the uh, story we've been telling? Well, <clears throat> since, uh, you know, as you all have uh, open, opened up the issue, uh, you know, the issue of war gets to the very heart of uh, how we organize our society. Mm -hmm. And since the central sort of economic framework of our world sort of, in my view, sort of can be encapsulated within the petrodollars, uh, pumping of oil, arms sales, keeping these conflicts uh, going, uh, that obviously has the manifold unhealthful effects on a, on a global scale. 
also keeps us from dealing with climate and the whole petrochemical flow, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Institute for Policy Studies a number of, for a number of years has been putting out some reports uh, which are uh, uh, comparing uh, climate security, what we pay to preserve the climate in terms of what we need to do, versus the traditional concepts of military security. And if we take out all the billions, of, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars for the certain conceptions that are now seeing with our current administration, you know, building, a w building walls, uh, continue to have these types of uh, interventions, they impair our ability to deal with climate change, but what we're spending for climate security is something on the order of 1% to 2% of what we spend on military conceptions of security. Mm -hmm. And fully half of that is to subserve the Pentagon planning to intervene with all of the refugees and others who are going to continue to stress our planet. I'm reminded of something that Ted shared uh, last week, which is dealing with the bimodality that we have to take into uh, with all of this, what the interplay between what the planetary uh, capacity to deal with this stuff versus the human impacts, and there's no bigger human impact than war, and the fact that our country is going to spend a trillion dollars <coughs> in the next 30 years to modernize our nuclear weapons that could kill us in an instant, that's four million dollars an hour. You could see the interactions and where we could use those types of resources to really change things much more fundamentally. Sorry for rambling on. You got me going. But anyway, I think yeah. those connections should be obvious. And they are imperative that we bring the movements together for change. Yeah. Because too much there's been a divide between the quote-unquote environmentalist side of things and those who've been working for peace. They're all integrated. And in the spirit of what we're talking about here, we have to think, particularly at this time, what we're, how we're going to bring that together. That's really helpful. I want to go to Cheryl Patton, um, who uh, has been part of this work for a long time and heads the Biomonitoring Resource Center at Commonweal and um, is my wife and partner, uh, for full disclosure. Um, but Cheryl, uh, as you have <coughs> participated in, you, um, you co-lead the whole endocrine disruption um, uh, series of Strategy. teleconferences in, in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. But as you've listened to this, what, what comes to your mind in terms of reflection? Oh, uh, I just uh, want to say that through Elise's leadership, uh, the Collaborative on Health and the Environment is recognized around the world. Just standing on the shoulders of Che, it makes it much easier for me to reach out to scientists and have them be on the call or to engage in other ways. So. Just what you've done has been so amazing. I'm so enormously grateful to walk into a room and say, I'm from Commonwealth for Che. Oh, some lights go on. So that's always great. And I just want to acknowledge my gratitude to you. Um, I think that the calls that we do on endocrine disrupting chemicals continue to be extremely popular. And, and I'm joined by agency representatives in the US government and other researchers and academicians. So it's really interesting to me how much interest uh, continues to be there about these chemicals and 
how they work, what the pathways of exposures are, what diseases they're connected to, and the insidious effect they have on our lives generation after generation after generation, and how they, they can be potentiated uh, through the synergistic effects of other factors. We don't ignore that at all. Uh, so that continues to be a really important focus for me, and I'm grateful for uh, Che's sponsorship of that and be able to work with Theo Coburn's organization, the Endocrine Disrupting uh, Collaborative and uh, Exchange, and with Heels, the Che's a partner in Europe, to publicize what's going on around this continuing tide of toxic chemicals we're exposed to. And as you've mentioned, we're, it's not hundreds of chemicals, it's thousands. It's, it's a, the estimate is we're carrying around about 6,000 chemicals in our bodies that are used in industrial processes or are essentially man-made. And we're able to now, at this point, biomonitor. It's hard to say because of fast throughput, but pre, you know, a couple years ago, maybe we could test for 600 of those. So just to continue to talk about the tide of toxic chemicals remains important. It's important to eat your carrots. It's important to get exercise. It's important to have community support. But the new thing that happens in this generation in the past is toxic chemical exposures. So to have that nested in Che is really, really important. You know, you've asked the wrong person to talk because you knew I can't care about that. <laughs> but I just want to say that one last thing about biomonitoring. Uh, governments will tend to use it to indicate trends in chemical use and exposures. But the on-the-ground use of biomonitoring in communities allows that community to uh, organize, to stabilize, to capacity build, to learn the stories, and to mobilize. It's incredibly powerful in ways that other things are not. Mm -hmm. And it's political. Chemical exposures is political. Asthma is political. That's right. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of these diseases are political in their nature. So. Cancer is political. Asthma is political. Cancer is political. Infertility is political. And Allie Carlson, uh, we've talked about you, but uh, I want to come back to you. Um, um, you've been uh, involved with Che from very early on and have been doing um, extraordinary work trying to replace toxic chemicals with green chemicals and products. Um, what are your reflections as you listen to this? Um, I had a really big one, which was um, the importance of mentors, that mm -hmm. Che became a platform, sort of an attractant for people like me, you know, mm -hmm. um, a home. It gave me a place to organize my thoughts. And, and um, you know, I'll just cite a, a few of the people. So, number one, meeting with Charles uh, for lunch, who gave shape to what it was I cared about and referred me to you. Um, your mentorship in helping us to think through that first workshop on reproductive health and fertility and chemicals at Vallambrosa, it wouldn't have occurred to me to, to use the wing spread model. Um, that really changed the trajectory of the work, that one sentence that, that you spoke. Uh, I'm not sure I forgive you for it yet, because um, it was so much work. <laughs> but it was worth it. Um, Ted Shuttler and Pete Myers, who were um, ever available to me um, to check my my thinking, to, to so I could I could consult with them on on the validity of a study that I was writing about, or um, just check my thinking. Thought partnership. Um, guidance on the science was absolutely, none of this would have happened without the science advisors mm -hmm. of Che. So, um, I know, well, commonweal and Che. So, mm -hmm. um, 
for me, that was incredibly moving, and I get credit as I did today, but um, I keep saying, wanting to say no. You know, it was, I was a, I was a tool, but hmm. it was the, the community of experts that Commonweal and Shea um, bring that really makes things happen. And really, what Shea's intention was has never been more fully realized than in fertility uh, work. Um, say a word about the major partners that are carrying that forward now. Oh, it's so exciting. I'm so happy that um, I'm not associated. My name is not, you know, it's yeah. other people who have adopted yeah. this. And um, so the, the biggest outcome, I would say, um, well, first was professional societies, you know. It was amazing um, for me when we started this work to look around and, and um, the Association of Reproductive Health um, Specialists didn't really pay any attention um, to the issues of environment and pollution and way upstream prevention. Um, that, was, that was true of a lot of the medical societies. And so um, it was really fun, actually, with the backing of the expertise here to, to call up the executive director of ASRM and say, hey, how come you guys know nothing and pay no attention to this really important thing? And he just happened, to, the executive director happened to believe it was something they should pay attention to. And I feel like we turned that society and they now have a special interest group. They have programming in all their annual meetings. Um, they promote research and have had a research prize in um, chemicals and infertility. So professional society work is really important on the Hill. Um, it, Members of Congress listen to, um, as they say all the time when you go there, um, doctors, uh, incredibly um, fire, firefighters are, are, um, have credibility on the Hill, as do, um, you know, the victims of, of, of disease. Um, they, so, so professional society uh, work, that was carried on also by Steve Heilig and the San Francisco Medical Society and his partnership as a, as a director of um, CHE. Uh, with uh, pediatrics and other groups. So I've really admired how much CHE has affected content in professional mm. medical and health disease societies. Um, and the other big partnership was um, my doctor in, at Stanford in infertility, Dr. Linda Judice, at least mentioned her. Um, Michael called me up um, I had, I had called my doctor and said, you know, what, why is Stanford so bad at environmental health and Berkeley is so good? And I did that on purpose <laughs> um, just to, to see if um, my alma mater would pay attention. And she picked up um, right away on this and joined our, our early in the CHE working group. And Michael called me up and said, Allie, do you understand what it means to have the director of women's health at Stanford and... Um, also, she was um, head of the REI, Reproductive Endocrinology uh, and Infertility Clinic. Um, you stay close to her, bring her close. We ended up becoming really good friends, and she kind of co-led the Fallon-Brosa meeting. And then, as she got recruited by UCSF, David Kessler at UCSF, to become the chair of OBGYN at UCSF, I said, great, ask them for a couple hundred thousand dollars to start a, the, a program called Reproductive Health in the Environment at UCSF. We couldn't get it going at Stanford. And um, so she did that. And uh, with Che's partnership, Che gets um, less recognition than it deserves 
for organizing organizing the 2007 Che UCSF Summit on Reproductive Health and the Environment, which gathered 400 uh, scientists, doctors, and health advocates from around the world. Um, and I'll just end by saying that that launched the program at UCSF, which is still growing, expanding, has the support of, of the dean and, and the chancellors there. Um, they have great plans, and they picked up a lot of what Che was doing originally. Um, and I still, to this day, run into people. Uh, Arlene Bloom, our favorite scientist on flame retardants, held a workshop recently, and I went there, and I asked a question, and some, a doctor came running up to me saying, Che changed my life mm -hmm. because I was struggling about this. I had a health issue myself and nobody understood environmental factors and I've since changed to become a functional med doctor and it was at the summit that wow. that, that happened. Um, Arlene Bloom, likewise, had been out of that science for a long time and was involved in this conversation and said, that happened for me too. You know, it was amazing to be at the, the summit and to reconnect with, it's what got me back into the field and she's going great guns. So it's hard to even imagine all the, the tentacles that, mm. that come out of the chain. And you're very modest about it, but the fact remains that, that one of the things that 41 years at Commonweal has taught me <coughs> is that almost all our important work results from, in any given field, one person deciding to take it on who has the skills to do it. And then others gather around that person. But there has to be one person who takes something on and says, mm -hmm. this is my dharma, this is my life work for this period of time. And, <clears throat> and it is simply worth acknowledging that in the thing that Che has had the greatest single success in, which is reproductive health and pregnancy compromise, that you were that one person uh, and that it almost always connects to a personal passion, mm -hmm. to a personal experience mm -hmm. that we've had mm -hmm. that make us say, we want to change this. We want to be witness to this. Yeah. Michael, can I add uh, yeah. a comment? Yeah. Since we're talking about the program on reproductive health and the environment yeah. that Ali uh, yeah. initiated, that Patrice Sutton is here, uh, who has been working with oh, the program I didn't see the Patrice in the environment yeah. since it began. Yeah. And I, you know, Patrice has been working a lot behind the scenes, but has been a major driver of that program in many, many ways. Mm. But the amount of work that she has turned out in published papers mm -hmm. as a primary author is astounding. And, um, and, and will live forever in the peer-reviewed literature. So I think we owe Patrice uh, a, a debt of gratitude. Well, a debt of gratitude, but also, Patrice, would you speak to this? I apologize for not Michael, seeing... Michael, can, can you make sure, Patrice, you have to talk about ACOG, the fact that you turned that society, which is probably is as important as TES. So... Um, so Allison and Che, we talked about the beginning of the program, and so what, because we were at UCSF, really, we were able to leverage was health professional societies and the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which in terms of what Michael was saying, Jeannie Connery, who in terms of you have a person right. who moves it and who's a champion, so Allison begot um, Linda, who begot Jeannie Connery, yeah. and um, so we had a champion there, and by leveraging the um, 
the, the uh, really one of the most important U.S. women's health professional societies around these issues, mm -hmm. that um, ultimately the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics, FIGO, Jeannie and Linda having the domestic, um, really tremendous support, so it was able to move this globally. And it is true that right now doctors around the world believe the science. They, it's like we have completely, this work has completely changed the conversation from whether or not chemicals and environment affects reproductive health to what to do about it mm -hmm. and how to bring this into the policy arena. So it really started um, with Che and um, has really, in that sense, got global traction now. Patrice, what has been the focus of your writing and work within that? Well, um, so the program um, that Allison made happen has two parts. One is basic research, and we look at chemicals that are in each trimester of pregnancy and environmental exposures. So we collaborate with stem cell folks at UCSF, looking at uh, placental development and environmental chemicals. We look at um, second, uh, the second trimester because we have a relationship with the Women's Options Center at UCSF, and then we look at two cohorts that... Uh, both at the General and at uh, Mission Bay. So we have all of this basic research program, but I have my own personal contribution has been on the research translation side, which has really been about health professional engagement. And the other piece of it has been that if we want um, physicians and policymakers to act on the science, we need to have a, um, a kind of system that's comparable to evidence-based medicine for our science. And I just want to, I'm seeing Heather here, which I haven't seen her in a long time. It's so nice to see you. Heather was, and Ted, of course, was um, at the original meeting. I think, Allison, you were there, too, of what was called the Navigation Guide, which is kind of a big part of the work that I've spearheaded, which is how do you um, translate what we know about environmental chemicals to make a decision about what to do now. It's in a systematic and transparent way. So we developed this systematic review method for application and environmental health. Thank you. And I'm so glad. I love the way this dances around the room because I was going to come to Heather Sarantis next. And Heather, who has worked in women's health issues at Commonweal for many, many years um, and has been involved with Che and many other dimensions of our work in environmental health. Heather, as you listen to the conversation, what are your thoughts, reflection? Um. Well, I will echo just the gratitude hearing the stories of what you kicked off, Elise. It's really wonderful to pull this narrative together and see how we all sort of tip each other's dominoes in certain ways. Um, so I have worked a lot on the advocacy side of things. And so I think about how do we make science useful for social change? And there's no doubt that the cohesion of the science has been critical in things like the Campaign for Safe Cosmetics, which I worked on for many years, and being able to access the information, but also just to figure out who to talk to, what scientists to talk to, and who, who would be open-minded about helping us review the work to make sure that the advocates actually get it right. So even though Che didn't take on policy um, platforms necessarily, they still provided a great networking resource um, to make sure that we were getting the science right when we were releasing reports that actually had ripple effects up on Capitol Hill. So you want to get it right when you're at that level, certainly. So that was that was profound. But I think in, in thinking about where um, 
where I stand in the stream of the work of Che at this moment, um, I'm excited about a project that I've just started with um, Breast Cancer Fund, recently renamed Breast Cancer Prevention Partners, developing a cancer prevention platform for the state of California. And, um, and I, in listening to the way you two were talking, there's no way that our work on this doesn't come directly from the work of, of, of years gone by. Um, and so most states have a cancer plan of some sort that focuses on screening and they'll often tell you to stop smoking and get a little exercise. But they really don't take this big comprehensive approach to how can we work on the resilience? How can you overall through various aspects of your life reduce your risk for cancer overall? And so our project, which is a, a two-year project funded by the California Breast Cancer Research Program, We'll be pulling together a network of people to look at um, the role of physical activity and food and occupational exposures and environmental exposures and social determinants of health and trying to pull the best thinking together so that we can make a policy proposal for the state of California for cancer prevention. Um, and we'll see how it goes. It's a tight timeline. We've got Ted Shetler on the advisory committee as well as many others. Um, but this will hopefully be a model for the rest of the states and then ultimately federally. And um, we do have somebody from the CDC who's going to be an advisor on this. So I think we have the potential to have a runway for a real impact over time. Go ahead with your stream well, conversation. So. One, one, one more, more and then I'm yeah, going to sure. back okay. to Elise. So sitting right next to Heather here in the audience is our friend and colleague, Neil Gundell, who has been a... Um, friend and partner of Che for a very long time and was himself uh, one of the early pioneers of this work in San Francisco. Neil, as you've listened to this conversation, do you have any reflection? Well, uh, for people to get a sense of where I'm coming from, I had a much different life uh, doing a lot of other things and Around 1990, I decided to create the Healthy Children Organizing Project in San Francisco, which at that time was called the Childhood-Led Poisoning Prevention. Mm -hmm. And that was the start of a lot of things that happened throughout the country for the first time because lead was one of the first chemicals, if you want to call it that, that was really actually researched. Mm -hmm. Uh, and San Francisco was literally painted with lead. I came at it from uh, an outlier approach because here I was in San Francisco and Che wasn't created and I said, what do I do? So I decided to organize the whole city. So that meant government and all the communities in San Francisco that are disappearing where they're very poor people and very poor housing and their houses are loaded with lead. So I spent 10, 15 years doing that with the landlords and the tenants and everybody else and the people provided family and children's services who speak the right language to try and bring it into the community so the neighborhoods themselves who speak lots of other languages um, and don't get outside their neighborhoods, tell each other what to do to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. But this was just kind of the beginning, and as Che got created, and I 
saw this going on, and I said, who are these people? <laughs> because I didn't know. And I got to know. And what happened in this period, 2000 on, slowly but surely and more and more, was learning about chemicals and what people have in their houses especially in the poorer communities where they don't have choice. And you can imagine the things they have in their houses. Uh, and we switched to the Healthy Children Organizing Project about that time. And what Che helped us with was um, what this all meant in terms of how it affected people, because we couldn't do the research. But we had people out in the community all over. And if I hadn't retired because I was getting old, mm -hmm. <laughs> what I was getting from the California Endowment and some other people was I was basically telling them I wanted to change the marketplace. <coughs> I want the people in the community to stop buying that stuff and I want them to get healthy things mm -hmm. to clean with and eat and so on and so forth. And then you can see all these things coming together. Um, and I hope somebody continues to do it, but that's, that's what I left with, was we need to change the marketplace. All of us. I go in and Safeway and, and the hair in the back of my head just goes, I gotta get out of here. Thank you, Neil. Yeah. I want to come back to Elise now. We've been hearing from some of the people who have been very central to our partnership work. Uh, what are your reflections as you listen? Well, I think one piece we haven't uh, mentioned yet, and, and Ted has also been very instrumental, is uh, our latest kind of product, if you will, which is a story of health. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ted and Maria Valenti, who is coordinating our, well, healthy aging, but she's now primarily uh, working on this project. Um, and uh, we have colleagues at the ATSDR, the um, Agency for Toxic Substances and Control uh, Registry. Did I get that? <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, and what they base this on, and it really is a reflection of the ecological model of health, is a family reunion. And uh, it's, a, it's an e-book. And so in the family reunion, you know, there's, um, you know, so-and-so Stephen with asthma and uh, Amelia with a learning disability and, uh, you know, another person with childhood leukemia. And then there's going to be other chapters on reproductive health, which is the next one that will be coming out. And the ebook uh, provides this research rich, uh, uh, you know, centralized information on all the science. It has interactive videos, it has, you know, the graphics, it has it in simple accessible language, but if you want to go deeper, there's, you know, thousands and thousands of references. Um, and very excitingly, it's uh, on the you know, Centers for Disease Control website, they're hosting the continuing education credits. And this book, A Story of Health, this ebook, is their most popular course, three times as popular as their next one in terms of uh, people registering for the CE credits. And uh, I think that says a lot about the work 
Um, there are three more chapters uh, that are right now, uh, hope to come out. It's an incredible work. It's been done on a shoestring. And I think that that, is, um, that product, if you will, in, is now uh, unfolding in other ways that we really hoped it would on the community level. And Charles, whom I believe had to and uh, Maria Valenti and others have created um, a, a puppet show uh, that works with uh, some of the Hispanic community around these issues, and they're also creating a graphic novel. You're listening to a conversation with Elise Miller and Michael Lerner. And so there are more and more ways that we can get outside the, you know, the, the, the lab coats, <laughs> the temple, right, <laughs> whatever, um, and and really get this information to communities in ways that are accessible. And so that that project, um, to me, is just the most recent of, of Che's uh, efforts mm-hmm. has been um, really effective, mm-hmm. and I think will continue to be so. Um, I also want to mention uh, when when Charles was talking about biomonitoring and how important that has been to us. Uh, one of the reports that Che helped to work on, along with a number of other colleagues, and Charles was instrumental, uh, was mind disrupted. And so, using um, the uh, biomonitoring techniques. And just with a few people, because they're pretty expensive, deciding on you know 15 people in the learning and developmental disabilities community, as well as people uh, with learning and developmental disabilities, to have themselves biomonitor their blood taken and so forth, and analyze for a certain number of chemicals in their bodies, and then become spokespeople about why having these chemicals in their bodies is uh, a corporate trespass, because we didn't. We didn't say okay. Let you know we're we're okay with all these industrial chemicals that haven't been tested in our bodies, mm-hmm. and so it's been that that particular product and and Charles and others have worked on many many others. Um, we actually took and we had a congressional testimony um, and a, uh, we had you know media and so forth when we when we re- uh, re- released it, and uh, and we weren't of course saying that there was a. We couldn't say there was a causal relationship between these exposures and anything that anyone was experiencing because we can't. We just described all these other factors. But what we could say is that you know, we've been exposed to you know, chemicals that do have the potential to impact neurodevelopment. And we didn't say that it was okay, they're, you know, they're in our bodies. And so, you know, basically, we need to change this and we need to prevent those exposures. And so I think that that piece was another very effective tool and one of the over 60 publications that uh, Che has put out over mm-hmm. the years. Michael? Yes. I have to, you've mentioned a couple of federal agencies. Can you and Elise speak a little bit to, you know, you asked about what's grown out of some of the Che efforts. A really important one is the relationship with federal agencies like NICHD, NIEHS, CDC. Um, you know, they've all been, employees, staff have all been members of the working groups. Um, Jerry Heindel, so would you guys talk about that? Would you say something? Um, sure, I'm happy to. I'm also cognizant of time. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, so these agencies um, had. You know, I guess we've had the good fortune of having 
people within those agencies become champions of this information and so and created incredible partnerships. You mentioned uh, Jerry Heindel, uh, who just retired from the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. And he has been an ally throughout this in terms of uh, not only providing uh, the money for forms where we could have these kinds of conversations to hone our thinking and strategies, but also uh, for various uh, you know, grants uh, in, in our research and, and development. And so, you know, someone like him and now Linda Birnbaum, who is director of uh, NIEHS, who's been passionate about these issues and has been a, you know, a incredible spokesperson and really has helped move the science. And so Che's relationship with these people over the years and has, has grown and we have, I think, both provided them with information that they've needed. For example, one of our most, um, our tools that people come to CHE for is our Toxicant and Disease Database, mm -hmm. uh, which was originally developed uh, w looking at 200 different disease endpoints and the uh, scientific um, weight of evidence of what the correlation was between a chemical exposure and that uh, particular health outcome. And actually, NIEHS, this national agency, wrote to us and said, would it be okay if we linked to your website? Because no one else is doing this, We because we, it's searchable by health endpoint as well as by chemical. And so that's, you know, those are kinds of places that, that Che um, played an incredible role um, in ways that we didn't necessarily anticipate. Um, I think, uh, you know, the CDC, um, the, the work around with Dick Jackson was there, and then Howie Frumpkin. Um, there, you know, again, these are the people who we were able, I think, because of the legitimacy we created and the reputation we created to be able to say, you know, we want to talk to you. We think these scientists ought to be on that stage when you do X, Y, Z. And I think that that, um, that was really an important piece of our, our work behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, just two anecdotes. One that's timely is that um, uh, at a Commonwealth board meeting um, uh, this week, um, yesterday actually, we approved uh, a new Commonwealth program directed by Jerry Handel um, called the Program on Endocrine Disruption Strategies as a Commonwealth Program. Uh, again, as these things happen, this came about because Ali Carlson <laughs> sent me a note saying, Michael, uh, you know, Jerry's just retired. Wouldn't it be great if uh, he linked up with Commonweal as a place to do his work on endocrine disruption strategies moving forward? So uh, I emailed Jerry and said, Ali suggested this. And Which is in the mail, by the way. Uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, uh. yes, then the Forsythia Foundation is uh, uh, giving us some early support for Jerry's work. And so um, this is how these things continue to develop. On Dick Jackson, who headed the Environmental Health Lab at the Centers for Disease Control, um, I vividly remember a lunch with Dick and Phil Lee when we were talking about Jay. And what Dick was worried about most at that point was uh, that uh, antibiotics uh, were being extinguished in terms of their efficacy for humans by their use in animal uh, stuff. And so that led us to create the Keep Antibiotics Working mm -hmm. Network, uh, which started here at Commonweal. Uh, no, I'm sorry, it started with our input, but didn't start here. 
And then uh, the funder group that supported that as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. the Funders Forum on Antibiotic Resistance. Uh, so the issue of antibiotic resistance continues to be one of the most important issues in human health. And there's just a very, very strong possibility mm -hmm. that not only all the cancer patients that we're concerned about, but everybody else, mm -hmm. that more and more of these um, antibiotics are not effective anymore. I also just want to acknowledge, because we haven't spoken about it, but it's the elephant in the room, that the new administration is working against every single value that the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, and indeed Commonweal, mm -hmm. uh, has worked on for the last, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever, 15 years at, uh, in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, 41 years. And I don't want um, the that disruptor to hijack this conversation. <laughs> but I do want to acknowledge. Absolutely. Uh, and I, Ted and I often take walks together, Ted Shetler in the morning. And on our last walk, Ted said to me that, we were talking about this period of time, and he said that one of the functions he felt that we are serving at this point is witness. Mm. And I think that's true. I think that... Um, in, in times where one cannot control the direction that events are taking, that the power of witness is very great. Mm -hmm. And at a time when science is under assault by an administration that is trying to defund science, and in a few weeks there's going to be a scientist march in Washington, which Commonweal has endorsed. Mm -hmm. uh, the, we didn't endorse it through the Collaborative on Healthy Environment because we don't do advocacy through the Collaborative on Healthy Environment, but Commonweal does advocacy. And so we've endorsed the science march. And I think, and many of us in different ways, uh, are seeking in whatever ways we can uh, to uh, move uh, America and the world back uh, toward the values that we hold. Uh, but I think that the, the function of witness mm -hmm. um, is a very profoundly important one uh, that, uh, that says that science is real, uh, that what we are describing is real, mm -hmm. and that no matter what the political currents of the day are, mm -hmm. uh, we won't be silent. Right. We won't be silent. Right. And it's not a silent can, witness. <laughs> and there are others who are the, the loud voices and the uh, strident voices, and they play a critical role. Uh, but at Commonweal and in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, I think we serve best. Um, you know, I like, uh, the, the analogy to the Quakers has been growing on me for some time. Some of you know this, but the Quakers only have 350,000 adult Quakers in the world, 200,000 of whom happen to be in Africa, by the way, which is something most people don't know. I did know. not know that. Yeah. And the Quakers have been at the forefront of every major uh, movement for human dig dignity and health and mm -hmm. uh, peace and, and so forth uh, since slavery onward. Mm -hmm. And what is their way of doing this? As it witness. is witness. Yeah. It is witness. It is gathering in circles and saying there is that of God in every human being, that every person is his or her own minister. You speak your own truth into the silence in the mm -hmm. center of the circle. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
Uh, this quiet, small group mm-hmm. has been among the most powerful forces for good right. uh, uh, for the last uh, several hundred years. And so when we talk about the work of Che and the work of Commonweal, and I think about the future of Che and the future of Commonweal, I think this function of witness, of education, of being a quiet voice for truth, it's kind of like being the quiet voice of conscience, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like saying no matter how strident the world mm-hmm. becomes, yeah. there's value in kindness and civility, our motto is science and civility. civility. That's right. Um, on the on the vaccine issue, you know, which it's it's currently impossible to mention in in the public uh, media that vac- vaccines might possibly have an impact on the development of a vulnerable subpopulation of children. Nonetheless. There is a civil dialogue going on within the integrative health and autism listservs, science serves, about vaccines. And uh, people are able to speak civilly to each other about the most explosive issue in public health today. Um, So this function of science and civility and uh, being the quiet voice of of conscience and of upholding science when science is under assault. I feel good about that. I think that's right. I mean, the circles we've created, they are circles of trust and Mm -hmm. and circles of where these kinds of conversations can can happen. And of course, we have a few people who it gets a little uh, challenging, but for the most part, it's been extraordinary over all these years um, where there's been very, you know, difficult uh, conversations around topics like the vaccines, uh, like environment, uh, EMFs, mm-hmm. electromagnetic fields, uh, where you know we're not so sure people all stay in the same room, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but people continue to come back and continue to work through those conversations, and um, and I think there we're kind of the only organization in the environmental health field, or one of the only, uh, which which serves as a forum, as an educational forum, as a learning community, not as an advocacy organization. We want to feed those who do that incredible work where the rubber hits the road and continue to work closely with them behind the scenes. But really, this is the one place people can come and learn about the science, have conversations about the science and its implications for human health and for policy and for markets. Um, And I think by retaining that, um, we have, have... developed a, a reputation for that kind of quality of witness. Um, and, and I think as we've moved into this uh, new administration where the assault is you know, daily and severe, um, we, we have to create other ways where um, this, these conversations can happen. And I think you know, providing that civility, providing these containers is, is critical. Um, and I, I want to give one example of uh, in January, uh, it was told that, or uh, the administration decided that the uh, climate change conference that was going to happen over three days in February was going to be canceled. And so um, it occurred to me that, well, 
we do conference calls all the time. That's what we do. We host these webinars and, and conversations on, on difficult topics. And maybe Che can provide, if the, you know, if the Trump administration will shut that one down, maybe Che can be a forum where these kind of conversations can happen. And so I contacted a colleague at, at the CDC and said, you know, we would be open to hosting this, uh, maybe a day long, but have the same speakers, have the same uh, people here. And, um, and within 24, 36 hours, of course, uh, far more powerful people like Al Gore and <laughs> a few others stepped in um, and said, oh, we'll, we'll get this together. Yeah. And it was like, you know, wonderful. But what was also um, disconcerting for me is my conversation, my email conversation, and subsequently we never got to talk by phone with this colleague at the CDC. It was very strange for me to, he's kind of disappeared. I mean, I, have, I haven't had any other conversations with him since this, even though he immediately responded and said, yes, let's, let's try to make this happen, let's talk tomorrow. And then there's been silence. And so I, it's, it's it's a it's a new era, and I have not experienced like that kind of concern where my colleagues at EPA, my colleagues at the CDC, I don't know what's going on with them. Um, what I hear is it's very very difficult. You know, the uh, Mustafa um, Ali, who is head of the environmental justice uh, director of the environmental justice at the EPA, had been there for 24 years, resigned yesterday, mm. and uh, and they're not going to replace him. And so these are, these are things we're up against. And I think we do need to name them and be witness to them, but also provide the, the strength of the, the, the science and the, the character mm. um, to keep standing up and saying, this isn't okay, this mm. isn't okay. And I think Che does a very good job of that. I'd like to take uh, a few minutes that we have remaining to uh, talk to you about where you are going. In your life. <laughs> That's uh, going to be and, a very short conversation because right. I don't know. <laughs> well, but, but to increase some of the things that I had hoped we could talk about, you, you grew up in a, a political family in Virginia, right? Your father was attorney general? That's right. Right. And ran for U.S. Senate and governor. And, right, right, right. And um, so you lived with the, the strains of being a, a public family called up on the dais at Various events, mm -hmm. yeah, right. Right, I actually came across a picture um, recently, and it was, I was probably six years old, It right. was and it was for a campaign brochure. I was, and I was at the piano yeah. with my pigtails mm -hmm. and my nice dress, mm -hmm. and my mom was leaning over, and my sister had a, it's all pose, of course. My sister had a book, and she was standing in the library reading it, you know, in front mm -hmm. of the, baby grand piano, and my brother, who was tossing, he was not particularly athletic, but he was tossing a football. And so this, um, this, so the snapshot of the Beaver Cleaver family, this perfectly happy, everything was just great. And it was just like, I looked at that, I just burst out, I mean, it was so poignant and sad on some level, because what it did was create this disconnect from our our authenticity, our sense of ourselves, and what we had to present publicly. And I learned that at a very young age, mm -hmm. um, that it wasn't okay to talk about anything that was going on below the chin mm -hmm. <laughs> um, publicly. Uh, and that was, that was a, a big um, 
piece of my life that I still heal from in mm-hmm. many ways is to bring those, uh, integrate those pieces mm-hmm. and, and to live more fully from that center. And Commonweal and Che has certainly allowed me to do that and help heal that. And your brother had a mental illness and ultimately committed suicide. That's right. And so in the midst of this political happy family, my brother was uh, ultimately diagnosed with bipolar and schizoaffective disorder, uh, but he was deeply struggling and there was uh, terrible uh, abusive scenes in the house mm. while my you know, dad would go out and speak to the public and um, he ran twice for attorney general and then two other campaigns for U.S. Senate and governor and all of this was happening uh, while um, uh, you know, it, we were smiling and mm. it was very painful. Yeah. It was very painful. Yeah. You went to Dartmouth and uh, after Dartmouth, um, you did some very interesting uh, things. You went to India uh, and then uh, spent two years at the... Um, Insight Meditation Society. And right. Well, so I went to India without any spiritual intention. I got in the scholarship to study freedom of the press in India uh, right out of college. And so I and I'd had the good fortune of connecting with the economists and the Christian Science Monitor, and so I was stringing for them. But mostly I was just wandering, and uh, I um, went to Bogaya because the this guy, the Dalai Lama, happened to be doing the Kali Chakra there, which I didn't know anything about. This is 1985, um, and uh, and I, you know, so I got to meet the Dalai Lama and these people because it was a big crowd, and I was a journalist, so I figured I, you know, I needed to be there. But w- what I also did there was a uh, teacher of Vipassana meditation. It was doing a 10-day silent retreat, and I uh, decided, well, you know, I'm in India. People like talk about meditation. I might as well do it out of intellectual curiosity, right? And so I, I sat on this, my first 10-day retreat, and about four days into it, I uh, practically grabbed the instructor and said, how can I be a journalist and meditate? You know, these, these inner and outer worlds had been so completely um, disconnected in my life. And, and yet I think I was drawn to going to a place like India, which was the kind of opposite of my East Coast um, upbringing. And, um, and that... Uh, opened this whole world to me. Mm-hmm. And that's when I returned, instead of going on to graduate school in international relations, I went to work as a cook and a housekeeper at the Insight Meditation Society. And then the next year did a series of silent retreats for a year mm-hmm. before going back to graduate school. And you went to the Harvard, uh, the, the Graduate School of Education at Harvard and studied with Carol Gilligan. That's right, that's who right. Who was a great figure in developmental psychology. That's right, and she was one of the first to point out that girls' truth, true voices, their authenticity often goes underground at 10, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a very powerful. It was the first class I, I took at the ed school, and um, and I brought out all my journal notes from when I was that age. And for the first time, I discovered that the intellect and the heart connect in a very profound way. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to write my first paper on my own developmental process Mm -hmm. in the context of this this course. And that opened up many more opportunities, and I decided to go to India to see if Carol Gilligan's theory on on, uh, girls' development was applicable in a developing country like India. Mm -hmm. And uh, I won't go into the details of that, but uh, I certainly... um, 
learned that, no, a lot of it wasn't applicable because the experience of, of self uh, in, a, in a very different culture made um, the, the sense of uh, responsibility, changed the sense of understanding about choice and responsibility and therefore affected how these girls mm. were in their lives. Mm-hmm. And after you uh, did that, you went back to India in 91, 92 with a different... Well, that was that research. Well, that's when that you went I, the, back. Right, yeah, that's when I, I went back um, yeah. with that research and then decided not to go on for the doctorate. And that's when I decided I really need to move to California and showed up here. <laughs> and the person who sent you out here was John Kabat-Zinn. That's right. mutual friend. And that makes the full circle to where we began the conversation. That's, that's so. exactly right. So uh, any last reflections as you um, prepare to um, leave the collaborative unhealthy environment and potentially go back uh, into exploring work with uh, women and young, uh, young women and girls? Right, right. Well, it is it's interesting when one comes to a place in one's life mm-hmm. where there's a sense of completion. Like, I feel like I've given what I can, my particular, given my expertise, my background mm-hmm. and so forth, can offer in this field. And, uh, and there's so much work still to be done, but it's, it's became very clear to me that it's time to... Uh, move or swerve into a different um, sector, which actually does tie back to my earlier work where I had been drawn um, at a mm-hmm. much younger age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I, wanting to bring in those other qualities that I haven't necessarily been able to express at all the scientific conferences that I go to, um, where spirituality or uh, you know one's uh, psychological, emotional, Social intelligences are not really um, valued in the same way, and to bring those front and center and see um, where else I might be of service in the universe. Mm-hmm. And I felt extremely well utilized by the universe here, and so profoundly grateful that I could find a place. And I will, you know, this is not a goodbye in any it's way, shape, goodbye. or form. Um, but over the last 24 years mm-hmm. to find a home where I could more fully become mm-hmm. who I am. Mm-hmm. And you have been that mentor for me mm-hmm. all these years. And thank I am you, profoundly grateful. Thank you. Well, I just want to thank Elisa's family and close community for coming today. And um, you know, I'm very moved. Um, I have the good fortune that because Charlotte and I spend two and a half months of the year on Whidbey, I always take a walk with Elise while I'm up there, and often we um, come to other events together. But um, you speak of me as a mentor, Elise, and my experience is that my mentors are with few exceptions, younger than I am. And so you've been a mentor to me, um, and you makes me, uh, brings tears to my eyes, because um, my way of being in the world is that I often start things, but then I find people who are better than I am at doing them. (laughs) And there's no question that you took Che so far beyond what I would have been able to do or could even imagine. And so, um, you know, I just want to thank you for um, 24 years of work together. Um, this is not goodbye. 
Um, we should mention that this extraordinary young woman, uh, Karen Wang, is our new director, and we're all looking forward to her vision and uh, where she will take Chai. Absolutely. Um, and she was very sad she couldn't be here today. Um, but it's been a beautiful quarter century together. And um, <laughs> I don't think our work is done, and I, I don't, don't think our work together is done. So um, we'll keep you posted. We'll keep you <laughs> so thank you all for coming, and let's all go down to lunch. You've been listening to a conversation with Elise Miller and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.